Okay. Um, as the introduction made clear, I am not um, a medical professional in any way, nor am I a scientist. Um, instead, I uh, come from a humanities background and uh, looking at using literary theory and area studies theory to think about culture and how culture uh, deals with and creates context and produces and reproduces itself um, as a system of meaning. Um, so that makes me different than a lot of the other people that you've been hearing who have been coming at uh, these questions of what is the meaning of disease, what is the social reality of disease, what, is the so what are the social negotiations um, involved with dealing with the disease from a kind of, um, you start with the disease and then you see what happens around it kind of way. Well, I come at it from a different way. Um, I want to look at the, the cultural mores and the, um, the social contexts through which that we talk about, know about, think about diseases at all. So in that sense, I want to take apart some of the things that um, become a subset in epi epidemiology, right? Where you have like, well, cultural mores too, you know, lead to all these sorts of, of problems. Um, I want to get into that particular subset of epidemiology and really look at what is the nature of representation, what is the nature of the languages we use to talk about um, and think about a disease and our place within society in relationship to um, specific diseases. Uh, one of the most interesting comments I heard uh, in the uh, past um, presentations I was hearing was uh, one yesterday by uh, Dr. Cicilski, who talked about um, fear and the importance of fear. One of the things she talked about in the ep epidemiology of AIDS is that in the US, um, there was, she diagnosed a certain lessening of fear within certain populations within the US due to advanced um, methods of treatment that allow people to live longer with AIDS. So her thesis was that um, fear lessened and therefore disease, it allowed a certain type of prophylactic function that the, that the fear served to lessen as well, leading to a, a material um, rise in infections within certain groups. Um, I thought that was a very interesting and inspiring thing to say, and um, I, what I'm interested in is the fact that fear is not a unitary thing to me, just like authoritarianism isn't, or government control isn't, or um, any, most anything that any of the categories that we've been talking about as interpretive categories for dealing with disease, um, so-called subjective ones or culturally determined ones are, again, also not monolithic, that it's not about fear, it's about fears. And so um, organizing my work on Japanese horror films, I want to look at a specific type of fear in relation to other f ways of thinking about fear and see if there can be an ethics of reading fear, an ethics of thinking about fear, and an ethic, and which all revolves around really an ethics of feeling fear. So um, with that in mind, I want to see some horror movies. Um, <laughs> uh, and so um, Japan is, is an odd place to start with in a generalized uh, global context of AIDS because its incidence of infection is extremely low um, when compared to um, really anywhere. 
uh, their uh, blood donor um, population is was historically clean even when it wasn't regulated, and it uh, has its infection levels have remained uh, in a percentage wise um, compared to someplace like the U.S. much 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 lower, and um, their rate their high the um, rising rates of infection are nowhere near, for example, China's. Um, but, oh, that was surprising for everyone. Um, so <laughs> what, um, what I do want to look at, though, is that because of um, the low rate of infection, because of some of the special circumstances of the Japanese case, it allows us to see how, um, because the way that AIDS impacted the public sphere, the way AIDS came to be talked about, followed very different routes than uh, many other places where the infection rates followed a very classic type of uh, epidemiology, uh, such as the one that um, Dr. Szilski, who I can never remember the name of off the top of my head, um, <laughs> outlined for us. Um, it, it moved in a different way, and that's what I want to focus on, and how that affects how it got turned into a structure of feeling, a structure of feeling about disease, and a structure through which you felt something about disease or not. So um, the first thing I want to look at is give you a taste of what kind of movies I'm talking about. This movie is a movie obviously called Infection or Kansen in Japanese. Uh, it came out in 2004, so it's a late uh, part of the genre that I'm tracing. Um, the reason why I'm picking it to look at is because um, First of all, it speaks to the internationalization of this idiom of horror. Um, J-horror, as uh, some of you might have read in the pre-readings, is a specific subset within the larger field of, of the production of horror films in Japan. And it's one that has produced works that have been uh, both distributed in America and remade to great popularity in America, including, I'll get into which ones, but including uh, The Ring, for example, and The Grudge, um, an upcoming uh, movie called Pulse that's coming out in July. Um, and so in that sense, it has, uh, it, it's a type of cultural production that is specific to Japan, but at the same time has implications for other places. Um, so this particular movie, um, as, I, as you can see up there, and I lost my pointer. Well, anyway, you can read. Um, the, it's the first in a series of movies called um, J-Horror Theater that is made in conjunction with an American production company called Lionsgate. So they're made for limited release within Japan, but then with an eye toward DVD sales in America. And that, that is specifically why they're being produced in the way they're being produced. So in other words, you're seeing a codification of a genre a naming of it retroactively as J-horror, um, which is not, uh, was not what, they were just horror movies um, when they were first being produced. And they um, allow us to have a little laboratory into what the producers of these things think are the essences of these genres that need to be reproduced in order to produce movies that read again as J-horror and therefore will be popular. So there's an industrial element to this. Um, that's very interesting. Okay, so this particular movie um, is kind of fun because it's a movie about, indeed, infection. So it's a very um, good way to get into this 
this, these metaphors of, of uh, disease, characteristic of these horror films. Uh, within, the, within the movie, um, we have a hospital that is underfunded and sort of flailing around. Uh, you have a whole bunch of doctors who are uh, overworked and underpaid, a whole bunch of nurses that are undertrained. So um, it's, a, it's a dying hospital, basically. Uh, because of this, there are a lot of mistakes that are made that, that then they decide need to be covered up. So one particular mistake, uh, as we will see, involves a patient that has been burned all over his body. Um, he goes through a cardiac event, and during the course of them responding to the cardiac event, is injected with the wrong thing and is killed. So it's, in, it's incompetence. Uh, they're afraid that if they uh, report this, then the entire hospital will be shut down and all of them will be out of jobs. So instead, they decide to put him in a room uh, filled with heaters to decompose his body very, very quickly so that it would be impossible to trace what happened. So it's the course of the night while this is happening is the course of the movie. So um, what starts happening, the supernatural horror part of it, isn't that, oddly enough. Um, it's the the fact that people, the members of the hospital staff, one by one, begin to be infected with a disease that, oh, I need to go back here, that uh, turns their blood green and, um, see? Uh, <laughs> and it starts to leak out all, so what's happening is that their insides are liquefying, and then uh, they basically collapse into this pile of green goo. Um, the other distinctive feature of this disease is that right before they do this, the reason why we know that this gross thing is going to ha start happening is that the infected person starts to act in a way that's, in a trance-like way, that works through feelings of guilt or incompetence that they have. So there's a nurse, for example, who uh, is really bad at injecting things, and, the, um, and she has been trying to inject this one, one uh, patient and there's like lesions all over and stuff and they were like you really have to work through that you you can't do this to the patients at least um if you're gonna have to practice practice on yourself she's told by another nurse um so then when she gets infected with this disease she's shown with all of these needles all over her like a sort of hyper reaction to uh, an implied guilt or incompetence so she she's covered in, in hypodermic needles and it's like i'm practicing and then she implodes um <laughs> So what we're seeing, uh, the clip I'm going to show you is a particularly interesting clip, I think, that shows what the disease looks like. Um, so you're going to see a nurse who's under the influence of the disease and then what she's doing as an overcompensation. Lights. Um. So, if you can't tell, there's green blood taking over the red blood. Okay, 
I, I know, I know, I'm such a tease. Um, but for the purpose of this talk, it's not really important to say that he's, she's connected to a different nurse who's narratively important, but not, not symbolically. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so you have, at one level, this level of representation that shows a very disturbing um, a mind and body invasion by an outside agent. And then something that um, is talked about in terms of the exchange of bodily fluids, but also, more importantly, I think, through the um, exchange of an interior of a body with another interior of a body. Um, I, and I think, and also that um, the people who are involved in these uh, matrices of exchange are, have no control over what they're doing. Um, and that they're, and in this particular narrative becomes an allegory about uh, uh, medical practice that becomes resonant later in my talk, but that's not as distinctive, I don't think, or it's differently distinctive. Not all of them happen in, in hospitals, for example, but this one happens too. Okay, so what is the nature of the disease, though? And this is where we get into the, the really distinctive part of what J-Horror is talking about. So later on, so our hero, doctor, runs out of that room, sort of like a haunted house kind of thing. So he sees it, and he's like, oh my god, um, runs away, and then encounters uh, a senior doctor who he thought was gone. And then we get an explanation of what the nature of the disease actually is. <笑><笑> そんな感染ルートだろうとかよく考えろ。どういうんだ。忘れたのか。君たちが3号室に集まっていた時私は近くにいた。近くにいたんだよ、秋葉君。決して眠ってなんかいなかった。病と同友関係があった。私たちが取った行動に罰を与えたい。どう言いたいのか。事故だった。事故だったんだ。誰も悪くないんだ。悪くないさ。見失ったことは仕方ない。あいつが死ぬ。悪いのはその後だ。その後
Yeah, so now we know. Um, so um, what I'm looking at is, as you can see in my little uh, kind of gene genealogy, um, this, this movie is actually very, very late. And what I'm saying is that uh, it's codifying a lot of things that were uh, sort of nascent in this strain of J-horror that has become, became very popular within Japan and has become internationally popular. So um, it began uh, really with uh, Parasite Eve to a certain extent, um, and then really took off with the, the double, kind of double feature. Uh, um, it's a movie and its sequel, but they were released very close to one another, of Ding, Dingu and uh, Dasen. Um, the yellow highlighting um, indicates uh, movies that have been made into American versions. So in other words, have been completely remade. Um, all of these movies have been distributed in America, and all of them are available on DVD. But then there's uh, The Ring, uh, The Grudge, Pulse will soon be, and Dark Water have all been remade with American actors uh, with the help of Hollywood, as you say. Um, what's interesting to me about these things is that, um, first of all, the reason why I group them in a specific way uh, has to do with the way that their narratives are structured. I think that um, one of the distinctive points of uh, parts of them is this willingness to treat disease as both a problem of the body, but also a problem of uh, consciousness. And there's not, there's very little work being done to make the two come together in some sort of logical way. So there's very little explanation in these movies about how the mechanisms spreading these viruses, of these haunted viruses, actually work. So for example, Parasite Eve is about um, mitochondria which we all have in our bodies, but are talked about as if they are primordial beings that crawled into our cells uh, in prehistory and have been riding along ever since and have their own agenda. So they um, are slowly plotting throughout the film to confederate and uh, take over the bodies of their hosts. And what happens is that one of them uh, is in the body of this beautiful woman, and she seduces this and marries uh, this prominent uh, medical researcher who can culture cells in livers very quickly. So she's, she's thinking of him, basically as someone who can propagate uh, mitochondria, her brethren, um, at a rate fast enough they can have a critical mass to take over the world. And that's what happens. Um, the idea, so that's the, the, the logic, right, of, of the story. What happens in the storytelling is that you have um, no real explanation of why, how she communicates the mitochondria in her avatar, how it communicates with the mitochondria in other people. There's no, um, there's no uh, real talking about how uh, the mitochondria get activated in these other people. So you have puddles of water that people touch, and then they get infected and, and um, uh, what's the word, possessed possessed by this infection, this other consciousness, and their body rebels and has another agenda for them, sort of pushing their humanity out, out as it goes along. And this is very, um, and the ring, which many of you, how many people have seen the, at least the American ring? Okay, what happens in the American ring, anybody? In the American version, so the idea, the part that you guys haven't quite vocalized yet is the fact that 
what do you do? You watch something, right? So you're infected by, by this VCR tape, right? That you come into accidental contact with, and then you have seven days, and then you're going to die, right? Um, and then what we find out, well, we'll talk about that later. But anyway, so you have these technological means of replication of this haunting that spreads precisely like a disease. And um, it's implicit in the American version that it's a virus. It's explicit in the Japanese version of the movie that it's a virus. And it's talked about in medical terms in the book that it's based on, um, which is written in 1991 by a doctor. Uh, that talks about how the haunting actually affects cells and turns, makes a virus. And there's, in the sequel to it, there's actually a picture that he facsimilates of a little petri dish with the ring virus. So in other words, it's explicitly a viral metaphor, as is um, Parasite Eve, which was uh, originally written by a uh, biomedical engineer uh, before he became a best-selling author. Um, so. The, the roots of J-horror are specifically using scientific uh, and disease, and specifically disease or uh, like culturation and that kind of thing, these tropes as ways to talk about fear. Okay, um, I now wanna make a little transition and start talking about what was happening in Japan in the public sphere around the time that these movies started to become extremely popular. Um, one of the main uh, uh, characteristics of the 90s in Japan was the revelation of a series of uh, government scandals that had been happening both in the economic sphere, like pretty much any sphere you can think of. There was a lot of high-level corruption and collusion between government interests and corporate interests that were discovered because of a change that happened in the politics where um, the Socialist Party got partial control over the heads of ministries and things like that. So investigations were done that were not, wouldn't have been done under the Liberal Democratic Party. Um, so one of these scandals has to do with uh, HIV-tainted blood products that were distributed to hemophiliacs during the 90s. Okay, so uh, what is the deal with that? So um, hemophiliacs uh, numbered about uh, 4,500 to 5,000 in Japan. So they're a fairly small, I mean, they're a small group. Um, globally, they're extremely small, right? But they're, uh, with, even within Japan, they're a small, small group. Um, however, they're a confederated group that has uh, a certain amount of political sway um, and has an advocacy group, for example, and is able to um, confederate and have lawsuits, present petitions to the government, for example. And these, this is what was happening during the beginning of the AIDS crisis, the global AIDS crisis that was occurring in the mid-80s. So um, in terms of treating hemophilia, uh, the first big breakthrough um, in hemophilia uh, treatment was the development in the mid-60s of something called cryoprecipitate that was a blood product that people were able to use that allowed them to live much longer and something approaching um, normal lives, but they still had to go into hospitals all the time, and it was still very inhibiting to, um, to them. But this is a, a, not just blood, so it used to be dependent on blood products before that, which is a very inefficient way of replacing the blood that was lost by hemophiliacs. So this blood plasma helped and aided in clotting and helped to make them um, able to live better. But then in the mid-70s, a different, a new technological advance happened. Uh, 
where uh, certain factors were able to be isolated from blood plasma and create these products that could be taken both prophylactically and therapeutically. So in other words, you could take them to ensure that you wouldn't bleed to death in public, or you could, do it, you could take it if something bad happened to you. Um, so because of this, um, hemoph hemophiliacs began to see themselves as a, as a group that uh, were able to advocate for specific um, uh, availabilities of, of treatments and modifications in the way that they had been administered by the government and the hospitals in, um, that had earlier conscripted their ability to even travel or do anything. Um, so one of the things, the major things that happened because of this political advocacy is that they became able to purchase their own blood products and keep them in their houses and not have to go into the hospital every time to find them. So um, this was a big revolution in the daily lives of, of hemophiliacs and also up the consumption of blood products by hemophiliacs to levels that had never been anywhere near where they had been before. Um, okay, so how, was, uh, how are these blood products made? So in Japan, um, right after the war, the uh, whole blood distribution was uh, still a for-profit business that was dominated by uh, a company called Green Cross, which was headed by people who were actually um, former war criminals that the occupation allowed to be in these positions because of, for reasons of continuity. So they sort of took a blind eye to the fact that these people had received their medical training participating in uh, war uh, experiments, medical experiments on POWs that constituted war crimes. So a lot of these people were still in, in ha there's still that taint happening when people think about the Green Cross. They were running, a, uh, they, so they dominated in the, in the immediate post-war, so the 50s, um, the distribution of all blood. Then, um, with the formation of the Japanese Red Cross, and then later uh, legal developments, whole blood became segregated from that. So whole blood could no longer be a for-profit business for anyone, and it was dominated by the nonprofit group, the Japanese Red Cross. However, at the same time that that was happening, there was a distinction made between whole blood, blood transfusions, and the distribution of blood plasma, which was uh, classified as a pharmaceutical. So therefore, Green Cross still controlled the distribution and control the profits being made from the um, distribution and selling of blood plasma products. Um, because of this, uh, during the mid, so, oh, and the other thing is that there was a disincentive to use domestically produced uh, blood plasma because there was a higher profit margin. But the way that the medical system works in Japan, because it's semi-socialized, um, the doctors, the hospitals and the doctors and the pharmaceutical companies all pay different fees and then get reimbursed, right? So, you, so the, under government regulations, you get reimbursed the same amount no matter where you get the blood plasma. But so if you get it from someplace cheaper, you make more money as a organiza medical organization than if you use a higher cost one. So that, that was sort of the milieu that was occurring when the AIDS crisis suddenly burst on the scene. Um, because of this, uh, there was a disincentive to use domestic and therefore, now we know, um, cleaner, because the donor pool was cleaner, um, blood plasma group, 
plug plasma. And instead, they bought it from the Bayer, what is now the Bayer Corporation in um, America and then some other pharmaceutical companies in America who are having their own problems with HIV infection. Because the way the blood plasma is made is that you have a huge donor pool feed it, that's all mixed together, and then you get the, the plasma out of it. So one hemophiliac um, consuming one plasma product is coming into contact with thousands of people every time. So that makes the infection rate, um, well, you can see. Yeah, I, you don't have to be a math major to know that. Um, so you have this. So there was this scandal that happened because um, one of two, so there's the, the imported, the disincentive to buy domestic blood plasma, and then also the disincentive to buy uh, the newly developed pasteurized blood plasma, which was uh, then being, uh, under the process of being shown to be um, safe. So if you, you treated it, if you pasteurized it, basically, it would neutralize the HIV that might be in it. Um, but that, that was a newer technology and obviously more expensive. And so there was a scandal um, that came to light uh, starting in the early 90s by which there was people realized that the Green Cross and the Ministry of Health and Welfare, which shared officials, for example, like officials from one would ri retire and have positions in the other, um, had a co too cozy relationship and then therefore were not regulating enough and therefore we're recommending to groups like the advocacy groups for the hemophiliacs that they not petition the government to mandate the distribution of pasteurized blood products, but instead would keep with the, the unheated ones were fine, they were better, um, which was, of course, not true. This resulted in the infection of over half of the population of hemophiliacs in Japan. So, and because of the low rates of infections in other areas through like um, what we think of as high risk groups like uh, drug users and um, uh, male homosexuals and um, sex workers and all of that stuff, because those groups um, were still relatively untouched by the global AIDS crisis, uh, the hemophiliacs also statistically were this huge bulge in um, the people who were infected with HIV in, in uh, 90s Japan. Um, so what this resulted in, so that was the sort of late, late 80s, early 90s milieu. And then uh, what happened um, is that these lawsuits started, but the legal processes in Japan are ex notoriously extremely slow, much slower than here. Um, and they were just sort of being clogged in the, in the court systems and and moving around until the governmental changes in the mid-90s resulted in internal investigations that uncovered evidence that could be used in those, those lawsuits, but more importantly, created a media sensation, um, putting political pressure on the judges involved to actually act as, as partial advocates for the hemophiliacs. So they, um, they came back, and in 1996, um, as, as it says up there, their, uh, is both monetary and uh, actual like officials apologizing, that type of compensation as well, that was being awarded, which is something that almost never happens in Japan. The many, um, there are many, many problems that come to a legal level but are left unresolved uh, to this day, such as um, the comfort women issue and uh, issue of Koreans in Japan and Hansen's disease. Um, they all, many of these things are left unresolved 
for basically in perpetuity. And so the fact that the hemophiliacs were able to win this very public victory and to expose this huge scandal in the mid-90s was extremely important. Um, somewhat outside, uh, it, it's, it's somewhat outsized importance considering the pool of people and the, the scope of the problem within society. And so people were actually um, indicted criminally and given jail terms as well, which is uh, like former heads of the Green Cross, which is now defunct. So it brought down a corporation. It indicted these very, very important people who were basically invulnerable and um, became a huge media sensation. So that, what effects does this have on the way that AIDS is thought about in general in Japan? Um, for one thing, it, it abetted the already prevalent tendency to think that foreigners and foreign blood and foreign contamination uh, is the result, is the um, natural cause of AIDS. And if we just sort of keep ourselves, you know, clean, then uh, this wouldn't happen. So that means that um, when you get into talking about high-risk groups, like people who, um, who, uh, what, I was going to say use, is that the right word? Um, <laughs> who you either use drugs or also um, who cavort with sex workers from all over, or who are um, uh, homosexuals, um, are talked about not in terms of their behaviors internally are being specifically high risk, but the fact that their behaviors bring them into contact with foreigners. So you get drugs from foreign people. You get um, uh, you have international gay communities that have re regular um, tourists going through them, and so contact with Americans and other, especially Americans, but you know, dirty people. Um, and uh, also, internally, many of the sex workers in Japan are not Japanese citizens and are not ethnically Japanese, and so there was a definite coding of them as dirty as well, and an um, attempt to trace the origin of AIDS to people like this one specific Filipina um, sex worker, for example. Um, which is all rather specious and more than that, very politically motivated on the, on the part of the government who had really, who is very devoted to having a, the ideal of a homogenous nation that um, would be able to be defended. Um, the other thing though, so that's a very classic kind of way of thinking about um, the metaphors of AIDS, right? If, uh, I gave you the pre-reading about um, with Susan Sontag, and that's one of the things she talks about, that the AIDS in, in America as well is talked about with military and invasion metaphors. So we'll get back to that, but that's a very classic way. The distinctive thing for me is the identity politics that happened when the hemophiliacs entered the scene. So um, hemophiliacs became the face of HIV uh, for this reason, and they became it in a specific way. So they have... Um, almost no culpability, they have no culpability in terms of um, they did something and then they got, they, there was no, supposedly no risk in anything that they did. So in other words, they didn't deserve it in, in a very specific way. So because they became the face of AIDS, the identity politics that, that happened in this country about AIDS activism and HIV positive and living with HIV and prevention programs never really took off because um, what sort of prevention programs are you going to have for someone who has, depends on these blood products that they don't have the control of the means of production for in order to live their daily lives. At the same time, uh, Hansen's disease, uh, which is the modern way of referring to leprosy, um, their advocacy groups were engaging in identity politics because, and they finally pressed around the same time the re 
repeal of anti-leprosy laws that had um, restricted their their movement around the country to these islands. So they were in San they were forced to be in sanitaria up in, up until like 1996 or seven. Um, so they were all over the news at the same time as the hemophiliacs. The hemophiliacs were um, their, one of their most vocal uh, faces, I guess, is a 19-year-old boy um, named Kawada Diuichi who became very vocal. Um, and you know, he's a young, fresh-faced boy um, who doesn't seem to deserve, to deserve anything. And there was very little rhetoric about overcoming revulsion, for example in conjunction with hemophiliacs, whereas Hansen's disease are very disfigured, and they became a different type of face of disease and discrimination. So the, the way that things slotted out in the public imaginary is that you had these beautiful hemophiliacs who were infected with HIV through these huge webs of corru international corruption, and then you had these Hansen's disease, this, uh, Hansen's disease sufferers who were advocating, who were sort of terrible to look at, but also beautiful because they were advocating their own type of innocence and their own um, identity uh, based on disease. And then the gay movement in Japan is very marginalized in public discourse. And so on the one hand, you have spectacularized representations of uh, gay entertainers and things like that in the media, but the political movement is, um, while there, is not, is shunted to the side of of mainstream society and also identified with the American movement. So the people who are politically active in the gay movement in Japan have close, are seen to have close ties to um, like international movements for, for gay rights. And so therefore are tainted in this specific way and are not considered to be, not talked about in terms of their Japanese-ness. They're talked about in the terms of their rights just like resident Koreans and people like that are. So in other words, they fulfilled in relation to AIDS a completely different um, force than we think about, um, you know, rhetorics of inclusion having to do with these so-called high-risk groups. So what? Um, so now I have to bring the two things together, right? We have horror movies speaking in a specific way. We have a public arena that is structured in a specific way. How do we get at, how do we read one and get at the other? So one of the ways that I want to talk about is, or to propose is metaphor. Metaphor. Um, in Susan Sontag talks about the importance of any kind of metaphor in thinking about anything. That's where she comes from. So the way that we relate to anything involves a displacement of representation. So the way I think about water has to do with its metaphorical import having to do with cooling or maybe, you know, all the, any sort of associations that you want, and those are all culturally determined and, and something that you can pull apart. Um, the other her intervention into the metaphor of AIDS and the metaphors of disease um, have to do with what she thinks are harmful metaphors deployed um, in relation to AIDS. So when you talk about AIDS, you have to go through these metaphors. And that has impeded our ability to think outside of the metaphors and think of other ways of dealing with them uh, as a society. So that she calls this reading against interpretation. So everybody interprets in order to think. But sometimes you have to resist those um, ways of thinking, those ways of meaning making, in order to make new meanings, is her point. And I find that very practical and very um, inspiring, really, uh, in terms of how to think about how cultural representation relates to the day-to-day -day lives of people. Um, but I also find it a little bit limiting in the sense that 
she sets out, you have a unitary metaphor, then you have a unitary signified, and how they relate to each other is, is just like this, right? And then you can slot them away and then replace it with something else, but it's not a system. So I want to be able to, these horror movies, I think, are a chain of signification that add up to a, something that we call, in my biz, tr a trope, which is a, a chain of symbols that interact and become a larger symbol, right? Um, but how do you get at not just reading a symbol and its internal logic, but also its referentiality to the outside? Sometimes it's very hidden and is not as straightforward as the infection movie, for example, which is a surprisingly one-to-one -one type of correlation. Um, so I want to talk about, just briefly introduce, so the ideas and the political consciousness of the metaphor to expand it and to complexify it with the idea of the anagram, which um, the linguist Fernando Saussure uh, developed in his work, actually talking about Indo, um, like ancient Indian poetry, and he would look at them and see that there is repeated vowel sounds. And if you put them together, they'd be names of gods. And whether that's true or not is sort of beside the point for me, um, since that's not my, my thing. But um, the idea that you have a hidden code within something that seems straightforwardly about something else, uh, I think is very useful in terms of complex systems like movies or like novels or um, intertexts, so n movies that are based on novels novels that refer to other novels. And of course, beyond that, um, movies and, and types of fictional production that refer to and, t and take on meanings from the um, non-fictional world. So um, by, I want to be able to fuse the anagram and the metaphor and the ideas behind both to be able to read horror movies and see many of the references and the intertexts that we can trace. Okay, so here is my anagram of fear. Um, J-horror and its relationship to disease seems to fall into some different types of pattern. First, you have a sort of subset of infection. So you have your body being invaded by something. As we saw uh, in the infection movie, you have uh, blood being um, circulated, and that uh, that is the main locus of fear. So your body is going to be, its integrity is going to be violated, and your ability to control it will be violated, which will become uh, important later. Also, you have haunting as invasion. So you have the gothic trope of, of the return of the repressed, or the haunted, the haunting. So you have a ghost or supernatural presence. But how they move is an invasion of the body, right? So how you are haunted is something that you take in in some way, either by hearing, seeing, or actually invading your body, and that that is paralyzing and frightening and makes either leads it to death or to actions that you wouldn't otherwise take. So then we get into transmission. Um, how, how does the virus get passed from person to person? So you have technologies, I, I call them technologies and networks, but what uh, so in some movies, so you have the ring that has the uh, watching the tape. You have uh, a movie that we'll talk about a little bit um, called One Missed Call, where the agent is a cell phone. Um, you have uh, The Grudge, where the agent is actually the, all the public networks that make you walk into this particular house, 
So you're a public health worker, you're a, a member, uh, you're a policeman walking around, you are um, a family member, all these sorts of somewhat arbitrary reasons for you to enter this space that then infects you. And, that, and then, just like a disease, there's always an originary trauma, a place where um, something horrible usually happens to a little girl um, and is reworked and becomes a haunting that then is, is transferred like a virus. And there's usually a revel revelation scene that, is, um, that works to explain where it comes from. So sort of like, well, where did AIDS come from? Well, we have all these theories. It's a little bit like that. Um, also, you have a tendency to have one type of explanation and think that it works, and then at the end have a revelation that no, uh, what you thought was true is not true, and the infection will still go on. Um, so that's important too. And so then you have what I would call culturing or culture, the reproduction of culture and uh, the, at the cultural level. So you have an idea of who is innocent and who is culpable in these narratives. The, the um, heroes are always innocent and they almost, they just don't do anything wrong. They stumble into these uh, spaces of infection or stumble into these technologies, come into contact with these technologies of infection through no fault of their own. They also aren't really able to do anything about it. All they do is find out about it and try to warn people who then subsequently die. Um, and then as the epistemology works, as the, as the knowing more and more about it progresses, you usually get back to the originary trauma and in a classical horror paradigm, that would be a type of catharsis. So you'd either find a way from that to stop it or the actual knowledge itself, like in a fairy tale, would, would make it um, okay. So it's, you have a magical problem, so why not have a magical solution? What happens, though, is that you have this revelation. We all know why, kind of, these things, where it came from, and yet it's still then is shown going on. So almost none of these movies, unlike the pre-reading that I gave you, one of the, the major problems with that particular article, the J-Horror article, is that he has a, he has a um, throwaway comment about there's always the obligatory happy ending. Um, what he means, I think, is that you have like this pop song come on at the end and you have, um, you know, things like that. What you don't have, but to me, there's no way you can interpret it, the ending of any of these movies as anything but the end of the world. Because what they are is talking about how an infection moves from place, person to person. It's completely arbitrary, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. So all it does is replicate. So we'll, we'll talk about that. But So the idea of agency becomes very compromised. If you're innocent and you're in a complete system that you're unable to change, then what can you do about it? Like, what is your role in, in, uh, in this world and in, in this milieu of invasion and comp bodily compromise? And so, of course, then we get to the end of the world. Um, so how much time do I have left? Like, I can't read the clock. <laughs> 10 minutes? OK. So we'll go through some of these movies to give you a flavor of how uh, some of the things that I've outlined get worked through. Um, so here's Parasite, which I talked about before, where you have mitochondria as a foreign agent in your blood. You have science that is corrupted for its inhuman ends. So for the end of mankind, basically. And you have a violation of agency in the sense that you are no longer, these people who are infected, whose mitochondria become activated by contact with the um, mother mitochondria, um, are no longer able, they're possessed, basically. They're unable to um, act on their own behalf. And sometimes they're 
the mitochondria themselves, she can make them overproduce energy, so they burst into flames, um, which is definitely against, you know, the wishes of the host. So here we have the avatar, so she is, the mitochondria is speaking through the, the woman that has, has been possessed. Oops, that's not what I want to これは進化なのか。So that's how she took over the body by instigating a car crash. All right, um, the end of the world. Um, so she, that particular avatar gets vanquished when he decides to hug her and then they all burn up. However, the, um, the idea there, there's the implication at the end of it that people are still doing the same type of research and will, will again discover and reawaken the mitochondria in all of us and it will be the end of the world again. Um, one Missed Call is my favorite um, of these movies uh, by Mikei Takashi. Um, it's the one with the cell phone. And uh, what happens, the reason why uh, it's random is because you have a cell phone that um, is then dialed without the, the notion after the person dies. Cell phone is dialed and the number is generated by scrolling through the people who are stored in the cell phone, right? So whoever you've ever come in contact with or happened to get the phone number of is vulnerable to this type of infection. Um, so there's that. So we'll watch a good death scene. Sorry, that's dubbed. Anyway. <laughs> Yoko! Yoko! All right, well, as you can see, there's not a lot of agency going on with the control of the body there, uh, with the disembodied hand. Um, and then uh, this is the ring, which is uh, one of my last clips, uh, which 
as we've talked about, is the um, what we find out through our epistemology is that the solution to this uh, viral infection is that you have to show someone else within the seven days, you know, the infected film. Then they get infected, but your infection is magically solved. This means that you have a type of solving, right? But at the same time, it's still talking about the end of the world. So here's the end of this, the, the Japanese version, which differs a bit from the American ending. Oops. That's her son. ドリンの So you can see the gathering storms. That's actually how the that's the the last lines in the novel as well end with the storm clouds gathering above her. Um, this one's very interesting because it, instead of um, being a generalized apocalypse where everyone dies, you have instead a population of endlessly infected people, right? So it's very clear kind of parallel with uh, HIV without with a little bit of the culpability built into it because you have to show it to someone else, but that the social relations that facilitate that are not uh, coded in any, really in any way. They, they can be any social relation or an arbitrary one or a stranger. So uh, what's up with that? Um, so I've talked a lot about metaphor and meaning. So what, what are the ethics um, of, of types of fear. So these are types of fears that absolve the person who is fearful, right? You have um, a fear of being embedded in an international and corporatist world in which you have none of the, uh, no control over the production of anything that you consume into your body. And therefore, it's both extremely frightening, yet oddly, um, oddly comforting in a fatalist kind of way. Because what can you do? How, how, no one can ever point at you and say that you did something wrong or that you have any control over these things that are happening to you. Um, which get, leads me to the, what I briefly touched on, the hemophiliacs as the, as the face of AIDS within Japan, which has created the idea that you have these saints who are, through no fault of their own, target population for all of these social ills that are converging upon them that HIV is the precipitate of. So then you have... Um, it also becomes a way of thinking about transnational transmission. So they're being remade all the time. So it's, I'd like uh, to take this opportunity to think about why this particular Japanese formation would be popular here. Do we have resonances here with these types of fears and how they relate to um, our regulation of our own bodies and what that would mean? Um, and also the idea of international systems and foreign agents. So these are narratives about foreign agents being introduced into your blood, which obviously can be extrapolated very quickly into a national metaphor for um, policies of expulsion and things like that, which indeed um, 
there's a rightward turn in Japan that is fostering some of these ideas, the ideas the foreigners are, are infectious. Um, and then uh, my favorite part, which is the, the pleasures of contemplating the apocalypse. And I think this actually has the most political edge to it. Um, so when I talk about the viral sublime, what the sublime means is contemplating something that's so much larger than you that it takes you out of your own humanity and then puts you back into it. So in other words, the classical sublime is looking at something like a landscape, which is so awesome and so inhuman that it puts you, it becomes a pleasure in, it becomes a fearful type of pleasure, which is how Kant talks about it. So you reach the edge of your humanity and then are thrown back into it and becomes a way of thinking about transcendence. In the viral sublime, what you're being brought up against are these networks of, of viral transmission that, will, um, that you have no control over and there's no way to really stop in any definitive kind of way. Um, and so the other trope that happens in these movies is the idea of the ordinary being mixed with the extraordinary. So you have your ordin these ordinary lives that are filmed in extremely dismal kind of ways. If you ever watch The Ring, it's dominated by grays and really boring scenes. The things that aren't boring in these movies are these moments of, of bodily problematic or these talking about the metaphors of what's really happening underneath the uh, calm surface, dreary surface, and perhaps miserable surface of your daily life. So in other words, like in um, Dark Water, uh, if you've seen either the American remake, or it's true of both, that you have um, water dripping down in this horrible tenement building that she's forced to move into, and that the only real color in that movie is the talisman of horror, which is the, this uh, haunted purse, <laughs> which is bright red. And so it's the only red that's in it. Um, and so then you get into what are, what are the ethics of this type of fear? What are the ethics implied in this type of fear? One of the problems that epidemiologists talking about Japan have talked about is a complacency about um, pre AIDS prevention methods within Japan. So they take surveys and nobody's using condoms, for example, or very, very, very low percentages of people are using condoms. Um, yet infection rates are still, even though they're still low, are actually going up, especially in the heterosexual population. Um, so even though the fallout from the, the hemophiliac problem and the, um, the preponderance of uh, the high-risk group of the male homosexuals within the population of people who are infected have remained, have dominated the statistics, the one that's growing is heterosexual. And so epidemiologists are talking about how, um, for some reason, um, in Japan, people are extremely complacent about their day-to-day -day lives in relationship to preventing disease. Um, and I think that it's related to the types of fears and the type of talking about fear that I see also working in these movies. Uh, I think I should stop now. <laughs> I was just wondering, do you think that um, the genre of, of the movies is a direct result of the cultural significance of Japan in which to boldly denounce or to boldly attack certain concepts is not considered proper. So they use uh, the medium of entertainment as displacing some of their political unrest? Uh, no. <laughs> I, I don't think that. Um, I think that all cultures um, everywhere uh, deal with political problems through their, their uh, mass culture, I think we do. 
I think that everywhere does. And I don't think there's anything distinctive about that particular thing. What I think is distinctive is the nature of the fear that is being presented and worked through. Um, I think that has to do, again, with the distinctiveness, not of the Japanese predilection toward indirection, which I think is a myth, but rather the, um, the nature of what, uh, how HIV, this particular fear of disease and how it emerged into the scene. So people weren't fearful about uh, things that we were fearful of, like the wrong sexual partner or that kind of thing, just as long as they, they kept themselves domestic, you know. There was that, that idea.